Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt right. I was so and I just happy. Well, I had figured it out. It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. For the first time this week, we'll be bringing you two stories in one podcast. Our first story this week is from Erica Check Hayden. It was recorded in October 2016 at the Rickshaw Stop in San Francisco as part of the Bay Area Science Festival. Seeing the babies was the hardest part. It was December 2014, and I was reporting on Ebola in Sierra Leone. I'd arrived at a clinic in the city of Bo in the middle of the country. There were so many sick babies coming into this clinic that the doctors there had created a dedicated ward just for infants who had Ebola. That's how bad it was. They had their own special tent. Just before I'd arrived that day, a mother and a baby with Ebola had checked in together. But there was no sound coming from that tent. The whole time I was there, the baby tent was completely silent. I knew from my own small kids that... A healthy child would never lie still and quiet for hours. The next day, I learned that the baby had died. His mother had lived, but the doctors were worried that when she found out about her son, she would give up on her own fragile recovery. At another clinic in a city called McKenney, I met a little boy. He was scooting around the nurse's station in a rolling walker. He'd checked in with his mom, and she'd died of Ebola. And her family had refused to take this boy in. They were afraid of Ebola. They somehow thought that because the boy had been with his mom when she was sick, he might somehow infect them too. It couldn't happen, but they wouldn't take him in, and he was an orphan. He had nowhere else to go, and so 
he was living there at the Ebola clinic. It was hard to see. It might be hard to hear about now. Just think how hard it was for that boy and for his family. At the same clinic, I met a woman in her 20s. She was very pregnant. She didn't look sick at all, but she did look terrified. And I noticed that she was sitting on a bench in the intense afternoon sun. And I wondered why she didn't move to a nearby bench in the shade. She said that her name was Mabinti. When I met her, she was about eight months pregnant. Just a little bit before then, she'd felt a pain in her abdomen. She wanted to be sure that everything was okay with her pregnancy, and so she went to get it checked out at a local clinic. But the nurses there wouldn't treat her. They were spooked by Ebola. So many healthcare workers had died taking care of pregnant women with Ebola because these women often miscarry their babies and when they miscarry, they bleed a lot and their blood contains the infectious Ebola virus. So these nurses weren't going to take a chance. They told Mabinti that they wouldn't see her, that she could go get an Ebola test and if the result was negative, then she could come back and they would take care of her then. So she did what they said. She went to get the test. The only problem was that while she waited for the results of the test, she had to stay in this facility that's called a holding center. That's where I met her. That's where you go if doctors suspect you have Ebola or if they know you have Ebola, but you can't get a hospital bed. So she was living there in the holding center waiting for the result of her test side by side with people who had Ebola. So every day that she stayed in this holding center increased her chance that she would become infected with Ebola if she wasn't already. And it's no wonder that she didn't go sit on the shady bench because it was occupied by sick people who had Ebola. They were sitting and lying down on that bench. She was terrified for her life and for her baby. I knew that I would have done the same thing she had. And yet now she was living with this unfathomable daily risk. I really felt for her because my own kids were two and four at that point. And reporting from Sierra Leone was the first occasion when I spent any real time away from them. Having kids had reordered my world. I had been a journalist for a decade before I had my first child, and I had reported on all kinds of things, and I traveled lots of places. And then I had my son and then my daughter, and I wanted to be with them. So I cut way back on work, and I tried to squeeze it into a normal 40-hour week. I pretty much stopped traveling. I knew that I was dialing back on my own expectations for my career, and I didn't know if I'd ever feel the same way again about work. Then 2014 came and the Ebola crisis hit. 
And as a science journalist who covers infectious disease, I had to get on top of the story. So I was reading and reporting, basically trying to figure out why the epidemic had gotten so out of control. There had been Ebola epidemics before this one where dozens of people or maybe a hundred people had died, but there had never been anything like this where tens of thousands of people got sick and thousands died. So one day I was reading an article by a nurse who worked for Doctors Without Borders. It's the medical aid group that cared for a lot of patients in this epidemic. And she described um, treating a two-year-old girl who died in an Ebola clinic without any of her family around her. At that time, my own daughter was two. And as I read this, I wondered what it would be like for her to be sick and alone in a hospital without me or her dad there to hold her. And later that night, we were playing together in her room before bedtime, and I tried to imagine checking her into a hospital, knowing that I might never see her alive again. It made me feel hollow inside to know that mothers in Sierra Leone were doing that every day. And I started to see what was really so horrible about Ebola. Not that it might make you bleed from the eyes and not that it would very likely kill you, but that it was ripping apart families and neighborhoods and communities and all the social fabric that holds people together. A few days before I left Sierra Leone, I called Mabinti's husband to check up on her. He said that Mabinti's Ebola test result had come back and it was negative. So that seemed like great news. Mabinti could go home now, right? But no, there was a catch because by that point she'd been living in that holding center for weeks and she was in close proximity with Ebola patients. So now she had to get a second Ebola test just to make sure that she hadn't become infected in the holding center while waiting for the results of her first test. And so she was still in the holding center waiting for the results of that second test. She was still in danger. I came back home, and when I got back to my house on Christmas Day, my own kids were happy and healthy and well cared for, just as I knew they would be. But I couldn't stop thinking about Mabinti and whether she was okay. She'd done the same thing I would have done. But because Sierra Leone is a poor country and because the rest of the world took way too long to respond to the Ebola epidemic. She was fighting to stay alive and to keep her family together while I was helping my kids try on their new Christmas pajamas. After Christmas, I called Mabinti's husband again to check up on her. He said that against all odds, Mabinti had survived. Her second Ebola test was negative, and she'd been allowed to leave the holding center. And then in February, she'd had her baby, a completely healthy little girl named Saleh. 
it felt like a miracle. It shouldn't have to be. Thanks. That was Erica Check Hayden. Erica is an award-winning San Francisco-based science, health, and technology reporter. She writes for the journal Nature and on a freelance basis for a variety of publications. She is the incoming director of the University of California Santa Cruz Science Communication Program. Find her at ericacheck.com or on Twitter at, at Erica underscore check. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Our second story today is from Ali Matu. It was recorded in November 2016 at the Crane Theater in New York as part of the Gotham Storytelling Festival. So I was a really cute kid. Um, I know this because my parents told me so. Uh, In fact, my dad said he would love to make me just cry a little bit. And he said, like, you were the most cute when you would just start to cry. And that was cool. And that was my early childhood. And then one day I went to kindergarten. And I I wasn't one of those kids who had gone to pre-K or anything like that. This was my first time really being in a large group of people. And on that first day in kindergarten, we had circle time, where everyone sort of sits in a circle. And everyone had to go around and say their name. And it was going, going, that person over there. And I started to feel this, this feeling so strange and new. It was my heart started to race. It was pounding. And I, I felt myself kind of shaking. And eventually, it got to me. And I had to just say my name. I knew what my name was. It was an easy question. I just had to say it. And I couldn't. I just couldn't say my name. And I started to kind of tear up. And the teacher came over. And the teacher whispered something in my ear. said, it's okay. And she said, everyone, this is Ali. And it went on. And later that day, when my mom came to pick me up, the teacher said, "Um, Ali had a great first day. You know, he's a little shy, but he's so cute. He's just so cute. And I'm sure he'll he'll be fine. And I learned something that day that if you don't want to do something, just kind of like look cute and start crying and it'll be okay. And kindergarten was kind of awesome. Other kids would start to speak up for me. So if someone called on me and I didn't want to, I didn't know what to say, and I'd I'd freeze, and I'd kind of look like this, and one of the other kids would come over, and I could whisper in their ear, and they would speak up for me. And then there was this girl, Jessica, and Jessica and I became boyfriend and girlfriend, And we would hold hands and just walk up and down the hall. And that's all we did, because it's kindergarten. Um, And it was pretty good. But then I failed an English proficiency test 
not because I didn't know how to speak English, but because I didn't speak. <laughs> and so they put me in ESL, and I was going to ESL for like six months. And so you're probably wondering, well, wait a minute, Ali. Why did one of your parents like say like Ali knows how to speak English? Well, I never told my parents that they put me in ESL because, you know, I would freeze. And the only way I got out of ESL is I sort of figured out one of the teachers was talking about the kids in ESL behind our backs. And you could do that in ESL because the kids can't speak English. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I figured out that one of them was saying, you know, that kid over there, he still can't figure out his right from his left hand. And I sort of looked at her looked at the kid, and looked at my hands, and the teacher went, oh, crap. Only knows what we're saying. So they took me out of ESL, and... <laughs> Eventually, I make it to first grade. First grade was rough. It's a big step up. Jessica and I broke up. <laughs> she started holding hands with this kid named Nick. And I hated Nick. He looked just like Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone came out. And I was like, oh, sure, that's your type. I was really pissed. And I had this teacher who wouldn't really tolerate my cuteness. So one day, we were in circle time again. And it was shortly after winter break. So the teacher had this bright idea. Let's have everyone go around in a circle and share what they got for Christmas. I remember her saying that, and then me and all the, I was this little Muslim kid, and me and all the Jewish kids kind of look at each other like, this is going to be bad. <laughs> and so, it's going around, and everyone's sharing what they got for Christmas, and I was like, I don't celebrate Christmas, what the heck am I going to say? And so it finally gets to me, and I freeze. But this time, she won't let anyone speak up for me. One of the other kids tries. We were in kindergarten. They're like, no. Let Ali speak. And I was, heart was racing, trembling, sweating. I don't know what to say. My mind is going blank. And then I get this image of Bugs Bunny in my head, and I say, rabbits. Got rabbits for Christmas. <laughs> and the teacher goes, rabbits? And I go, yes, rabbits. <laughs> And I walk home, and <laughs> I felt pretty crappy about myself. Because even as a first grader, I knew that's a pretty bad lie. Like, <laughs> who gets rabbits for Christmas? You get video games. You get Nintendo. Or, like, I don't know, crappy sweaters. But you don't get rabbits. <laughs> so I remember going home that day and locking myself in the bathroom. Because that is the only safe place you have when you're a little kid. <laughs> and uh, I remember looking in the mirror and going... Why did it have to be me? Why did I have to be the only brown kid in that class? And this is when I started to feel like there was something wrong and something strange about me. I suppose I should mention at this point that I was also a really big Trekkie. And it was the one place where I felt safe was at home watching Star Trek The Next Generation. It was all of us, no matter who you were, how, what you believed or what you looked like, it was all of us in this future where we worked together and things were good. 
And there was even someone in Star Trek like me. His name was uh, Lieutenant Barkley. And he was this nervous kind of wreck. And yes, Captain Picard once called him Lieutenant Broccoli. But uh, I was like, hey, look, there's someone who also struggles with this stuff, and he, too, is contributing to the USS Enterprise. And I wanted to live on the Enterprise, and I knew you couldn't. But I sort of found out later on in fourth grade that there's this thing called Star Trek conventions. I was like, oh, I can't live in the future. I can't live in the 24th century, but I can go to a Star Trek convention. So I asked my parents, can I please, please go to this convention? And they're like, okay, sure. So they take me to the San Jose, California Convention Center, and they drop me off, and they say, have a good time. Call us when you're done. Here's 30 bucks. And they drive off. And I'm... I'm standing there in front of the doors of this convention center and I freeze. I'm excited and I'm also terrified. Inside these doors or past these doors in this convention center are the coolest people in the world. (laughs) And I so want to impress them. I so want to impress them. So I look around, make sure no one's watching me, and I take off my glasses. And I put them in the, my pocket, because I don't want anyone inside at the, at the Star Trek convention to think I'm not cool because I'm wearing glasses. So I walk in without my glasses, and I'm pretty blind. I can't see much. So I kind of see this, like, Klingon, and I can tell that person's, like, a red shirt because they're wearing red. That's easy to see. And this person is, like, in command yellow from the original series, and I'm walking around, and at the dealer room, I am kind of, like, pull stuff really close to my head, which doesn't look that unusual because, you know, Trekkies are a little obsessive, and we kind of, like, look at stuff. And then we went to the main stage, or I go to the main stage, and Leonard Nimoy is speaking. And he's there on stage. And I hear him. And it's amazing. But I can't see him. I just see this blob (laughs) moving around. And I'm just too anxious to put on my glasses. I won't do it. Because I don't want to seem weird. I don't want to seem strange. I don't want to seem different. I want everyone there to like me. When I got to middle school, there were these kids who about once a month would dress up as Star Trek characters. And I thought they were so cool. And every time I saw them, I wanted to go up to them and introduce myself. Go, hi, I'm Ali. I'm really interested in Star Trek as well. I like Star Trek The Next Generation, but I also like the original movies. And uh, it's great. Uh, What did you guys all think of Star Trek Generations? That's how it would play out in my mind. Because I didn't have anyone else besides my family to talk to about this stuff. Because I just wouldn't reach out and wouldn't talk to many people. But I never did. I never approached them. And... I really regretted it, and it started to feel like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just talk to people? And then one day, I'm going to my locker in middle school, and I see these kids. I have that urge again to approach them. But this time, there's this other group there. There's this group of kids that rip off their backpacks, 
grab them and throw it at them. And they say, you stupid queers. And I see this happening and I freeze. I don't do anything. I don't go and tell a teacher. I don't say, hey, stop, what are you doing? I just let it all play out in front of me. And I felt so crappy about that. And I started to feel more crappy, gained weight. I got depressed and I thought, you know, I'm never going to be able to shake this. What the hell is wrong with me? So when I get to high school, I enroll in public speaking. Now, I thought public speaking was going to be a class where you sit and you hear famous public speeches and you study them and you analyze them and you write papers about them and then you walk out. And so the first day of class, my teacher, Miss Georgiana Hayes, says, welcome to public speaking where all of you are going to overcome your fear of public speaking. And I froze. My heart was racing. I started to sweat. And I was like, what have I gotten myself into? So I do some research. I read the student handbook about how to drop a class. And I said, it was, it's very easy. All you have to do is get this form, go to your teacher, explain that you want to drop the class, get their signature, and you're out. And I read that, and I froze. Because <laughs> that would involve talking to the teacher and saying I'm going to drop the class. So I kind of waited out of my head, and the anxiety of asking the teacher to drop the class was just too high. So I was like, I, I can't do that. I'm just going to like somehow avoid it and not do the public speeches and just like get through this experience. And what happened was I was expecting something like this, like something being in front of a microphone and speaking in front of a crowd. And that's not what happened. We started off by sitting one-to-one -one with another person and giving like a three-minute talk to this one other person. And I somehow didn't freeze. It was tough. I was anxious. My heart started racing. But I didn't freeze. And we did that, and we did that over and over again. And then we did it with a small group of people. And it sort of got easier. And then we did it with a larger group of people. And suddenly, I started to feel like I was a member of the Borg Collective. <laughs> now, the Borg are a species in Star Trek where they are a collective, they're a hive mind, but what the Borg are really good at is adapting. When a phaser fires at them, one of them will sort of fall down. And then the phaser fires again, and the other one might fall down. But they learn. And each time they face that same situation, they adapt, they improve, they get better. And as I was doing these small presentations with these small groups, I felt like I was adapting. And I was just like the Borg. And it was addicting. And it felt really good. And then we started to share what was going on in our head when we were doing those small speeches. And I learned that this fear I have of being weird and strange and awkward and like an imposter and someone's going to find out how fake I am, everyone else had those fears. And so I did more. 
I joined the speech and debate team. I joined rally board and I started doing these weird, silly rallies in front of the whole school. I joined the wrestling team, which was probably the biggest exposure I did because you're wearing that singlet and you got, you got nothing to hide. Um, and years later, when I was in college, I realized that what Miss Hayes was doing was exposure therapy helping people in small amounts to face the situation that they're afraid of and doing it over and over again until you overcome it. And I realized that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do with my life. I want to help people so that other kids aren't in that same situation, so that other kids can go to Star Trek convention and, yes, wear the glasses. So I decided to become a clinical psychologist who helps other people overcome their anxiety. Thank you. That was Ali Matu. Ali is a clinical psychologist who specializes in the treatment of anxiety and body-focused repetitive behaviors. He aspires to bring psychology to everyone, everywhere by hosting The Psych Show, writing about the psychology of science fiction at Brain Knows Better, presenting to the public, and advocating for the brain and behavior sciences through the American Psychological Association. He is an assistant professor at the Columbia University Medical Center. We're grateful for the support of the Simons Foundation, who helped make this all possible. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Rickshaw Stop and the Crane Theater for hosting the shows, to the Bay Area Science Festival and the Gotham Storytelling Festival for being amazing partners, and to the internet for making it so podcasts don't have to fit a particular time slot. Thanks for listening. 